one of the definitions for the word entitlement is, and I quote from one of the dictionaries, belief that one is deserving of or entitled to certain privileges. Now, according to Webster's Dictionary, the first known use of the word entitlement was in the year 1782. It's a long time ago. But long before 1782, people felt entitled to all kinds of things, money, fame, respect, a job, education, and inheritance, and on and on it goes. Surprisingly, though, one of the issues that Christians felt entitled to in the first century was their right to eat any food that they wanted to eat. This was especially true in the church at Corinth. It's been a number of months since we have studied 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So I want to remind you that starting in chapter 8, Paul began addressing a very controversial issue in the church. That issue being that some members of the church believed that now that they were Christians, they should not eat any food that had been sacrificed to a pagan idol. And the reason for this is because they felt that to eat food sacrificed to an idol would defile them, would defile their conscience, negatively affect their relationship with Christ, because it would constitute in their thinking backsliding, since in their minds it would mean a return to partaking of the old paganism that they were saved out of. However, there were other members of the church who had absolutely no problem with eating any food, food that was sacrificed to an idol, food that wasn't sacrificed to an idol. It didn't matter to them. And the reason for this is because they understood biblically that an idol representing a false god was nothing. Since there's only one true god, there are really no other gods. So that was their point of view. Now, the controversy then was that those who did not have a problem with eating food sacrificed to an idol were reluctant to give up these foods, to say, well, I'm not going to eat these foods simply because certain weak members of the church have a problem with this and they didn't want to give them up. But without realizing it, by continuing to eat food sacrificed to an idol, they were actually harming those who felt differently, and they were harming them by defiling their conscience. The weaker believers who couldn't eat food sacrificed to an idol were actually defiling their conscience, and Paul told them about this. Notice 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7. Paul said, however, not all men have this knowledge, meaning not all men understand, like some of you, that there's no such thing as an idol. But some, now he's talking about the weaker brethren who couldn't eat food sacrificed to an idol, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And as Paul continues in chapter 8, he explains how this defilement of conscience actually happens. Verses 9 through 12. He said, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to an idol? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, 
you sin against Christ. Paul is saying that if someone whose conscience tells them, don't eat this food sacrificed to an idol, it's paganism, it's your background, their conscience is screaming that, if they see a strong Christian, a mature Christian, a believer who's been perhaps saved longer than they have, he's eating this type of food, food sacrificed to an idol, and he has no problem with it. They'll think, you know what, if this brother over here, this sister over here, if he or she can eat food sacrificed to an idol, then it's okay for me to eat this food too. But it's not okay. It's not okay for them because by doing this, their conscience being weak is defiled. Since their conscience is telling them that to eat food sacrificed to an idol is sin. And once someone's conscience is defiled, they're on the path to spiritual ruin because they will now be more inclined to do sinful things, their conscience becoming harder and harder and eventually calloused to the things of God. And the bottom line is that to spiritually ruin a brother or a sister like this over food is to sin against Jesus Christ himself. So in light of this problem, which wasn't I might add, unique to the Corinthians. It was actually affecting many churches in those days because they had similar cultures. Paul then makes a decision as to how he's going to personally handle this problem in his own life. He tells us his decision in verse 13. Therefore, this is his conclusion, if food causes my brother to stumble... I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul declares that he's decided that although he, in his own heart, he has the liberty to eat any food he wants to eat, his conscience not bothering him at all. Nevertheless, he says, I have chosen to refrain from eating any food that would cause a fellow Christian to stumble. By stumbling, he means defiling their conscience. In other words, Paul does not feel entitled to behave any way he wants to behave out of love for his brethren, out of love for Christ. He has decided to give up his rights to eat certain foods. And that's how the apostle ends chapter 8, by declaring how he has personally chosen to handle things in his own life. But now, as he continues into what we call chapter 9, he expands on this by addressing, watch this, not so much the specific issue of eating food sacrificed to an idol, but by addressing giving up one's rights in general. And he does this by focusing on one particular issue, his right, Paul's right, to be financially supported by the Corinthians for his ministerial services. In other words, to be compensated for his pastoral, his apostolic labors on their behalf. Now, prior to my vacation back in May, we were involved in studying the various reasons that Paul gave as to why he had the right to be financially compensated for his service to the Corinthians. But listen closely, because this is really the point of the, the whole chapter. Paul's purpose in listing these reasons for him to be paid wasn't for the Corinthians to start paying him, not at all. But rather, it was to make the point that though he has every right to be paid by them, he has chosen to give up that right because entitlement is not a biblical principle. 
See, Paul's whole point in doing this is to help the Corinthians see that the way to resolve this conflict, this controversy in their church, was to embrace the truth that though some felt entitled to eat any food that they wanted to eat, yet out of love for Christ and out of concern for the spiritual welfare of their brethren, they just needed to give up those rights for food. Now, as I stressed to you when we first started studying these chapters about Food, that although eating food sacrificed to an idol is simply not something that we in our culture wrestle with today, there are other issues that we have today where these same principles apply. We call these liberty matters. They are practices that the Bible neither commands nor forbids so that God gives us liberty, and thus the name liberty issues. He gives us the liberty to decide for ourselves what we're going to do when it comes to these issues. Are we going to practice this or aren't we going to practice this? And the most obvious one in our day is the drinking of alcohol with some believers having absolutely no problem with an alcoholic beverage while others are passionately, vehemently against it. There are just a host of issues like this, where Christians see particular liberty issues very differently from one another. And the reason I want you to be aware of this is that you'll understand that what Paul has written here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 about giving up one's rights is relevant for us. And it's significant for us because he reveals how to handle these differences amongst ourselves so as to resolve conflicts when we take sides over some liberty issue. Instead of digging in our heels and insisting that we have a right to do whatever we want to do, as long as Scripture doesn't forbid it, Paul commands us to give up our rights out of love for Christ and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he uses his own right to be financially compensated by the Corinthians simply as an illustration as to what to do when we're faced with one of these liberty issues. And the way Paul does this is, beginning with verse 4, he just starts listing various reasons as to why he was entitled to be paid by the Corinthians. Now, we've already covered four of these reasons, and for the sake of time, I'm only going to mention them and just briefly comment on them so that we can move on to new material we have not covered. First reason Paul gave as to why he should be paid by the Corinthians, number one is that he has a right to earn a living so that he can physically sustain himself. He says in verse four, do we not have a right to eat and drink? And folks, simply what Paul is saying that he has every right to be paid for his services, for his labors, so that he could afford to go out and purchase food and liquid in order to be sustained physically so that he could continue living. That's his whole point. Doesn't he have the right to earn a living so that he can be sustained physically, so that he can live, because he has to have food and water, and you have to be able to have money to purchase those items. Second reason, he has a right, he says, to take his wife with him on ministry trips at the church's expense. Verses 5 and 6, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working. Now, what Paul is essentially saying here is this. If he were married and his wife accompanied him on ministry journeys where she was involved in ministry too, then the church should handle their financial expenses. 
He said, this is what other churches did for the rest of the apostles, and therefore this is what he, and he includes Barnabas, was entitled to have the Corinthians do for them. Reason number three, it is the commonly understood practice of society that everyone has a right to make a living from their work. Notice verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now in this verse, Paul mentions three occupations, three vocations, a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. And he rhetorically asks the question, don't these workers have a right to make a living from their work? And the answer is, well, yes, of course they do. This is just common sense. This is the way that all societies work. Everyone has a right to earn their living from their work. Everybody understands that. So the point that Paul is making is this. If this is the way that society operates, and everybody knows that this is the way society operates, that workers have a right to be compensated for their labors, then certainly the members of the Corinthian church should understand that I, Paul, I too have a right to earn a living from my work for them as an apostle. Reason number four. The law of God teaches the principle of workers being paid for their labor. He says in verses 8 through 11, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to, to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it not too much if we reap material things from you. Now, folks, the gist of what the apostle is saying in these verses is not only does common sense and cultural standards and how society works say that workers should be paid for their labor, but the word of God says the same thing. Because in the law of Moses, he says, it's written, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. And what Paul is referring to, these words go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, which forbids putting a muzzle on an ox while he was working so that he would be able to eat some of the grain that he was threshing. In other words, the law made sure, it stipulated, it commanded that oxen were able to eat the grain as compensation for their labor. But what Paul wants the Corinthians then to understand is that the intent of this law has to primarily do with human beings. Human beings being compensated for their labors, not simply animals. Yes, it included animals, but Paul's point is to say it goes beyond animals. It's primarily about human beings. And Paul's purpose in bringing up this Old Testament law is to make the point that it isn't simply culture. It isn't simply common sense. It isn't simply society standards that say that a laborer should be paid for his services, but God's authoritative word teaches this. Now, folks, this is as far as we were able to go in our previous studies. So the next reason, which would be the fifth one, Paul gives for why he should be paid by the Corinthians is something we just haven't seen before. That fifth reason being this. The Corinthians financially supported other ministers. 
Verse 12. This is now new material for us. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul states something here that may surprise you, though it certainly was not a surprise to the Corinthians. He reminds them of something they already knew, namely that they had financially supported other preachers who had ministered to them, who had ministered to their church. This is what Paul means when he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? In other words, if other pastors, preachers, teachers exercised their right to be paid by you, you Corinthians, don't we, and the we here means he and his missionary colleagues, don't we have even more of a right to be paid by you? I mean, if you did it for others, don't I have even more of a right to be paid by you? Now, apparently what the apostle is referring to is that other men who ministered to the Corinthians, we would assume he's talking about Peter, and about Apollos, because he mentions them earlier in the letter, we would assume that they, he's referring to them, and that they were financially supported by the church, and they had no problem accepting money for their ministry. Therefore, the apostles' argument is this, if these men were paid by you, then certainly I have a right to be paid by you too. In fact, I have a greater right than they do. Why? Because I'm the founder of your church. I'm the one who actually first brought you the gospel. I'm your first teacher, and I'm your spiritual father in Christ. This is something that I'm entitled to even more than others. I played a larger role in your spiritual development. But then notice what Paul says. This is so critical that we understand this. Nevertheless, we did not use this right. In spite of his right to be financially compensated by the Corinthians, and that's what he's arguing, Paul says that he did not use this right, meaning that when he was with the Corinthians, he did not take any money from them. He financially supported himself. How? By being a tent maker. This is what we learned from Acts, Acts chapter 18. If you'll turn there, you'll see Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 1. The book of Acts explains this to us. After these things, he, meaning Paul, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade, they were tent makers. So here we learn that Paul stayed with this man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla, two Jewish people, husband and wife, kicked out of Rome. And now here they are in Corinth. And Paul stayed with them. And they all, and he probably was brought together with them because he learned that they all worked at the same trade, the trade of tent making. And Paul did this until his missionary colleagues, Silas and Timothy, joined him in Corinth. Originally, Paul went to Corinth by himself. Then Silas and Timothy joined him sometime later. Then we learn that at that time, when these two men arrived, Paul gave up his tent making 
to become a full-time preacher. Acts chapter 18, verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So the question is, if Paul wasn't being compensated by the Corinthians, and he wasn't, he refused to be compensated by them, and he no longer had an income from tent making, because now it says that he was full time, he gave himself completely to the ministry of the word, then how did Paul make it financially? How was he able to survive economically? Well, he tells us how, but not in 1 Corinthians. He tells us in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. And when I was present with you, remember he's writing to the same church, church at Corinth. When I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone, meaning I was not a financial burden to anyone. And here's his explanation. Why? For when the brethren came from Macedonia, the brethren being Silas and Timothy, when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. What Paul is saying is the Christians from the region of Macedonia, namely the Philippians, the Philippian church was in Macedonia. They sent monetary gifts to Paul for Paul by way of Silas and Timothy. That is how Paul survived financially. Others supported him, but he refused to take any money from the Corinthians. And this refusal to accept any money from the Corinthians continued, he says, for the entire time that he was with them, which according to Acts chapter 18, verse 11, wasn't just a few weeks. It was a year and a half. So the question then is this, why did Paul do this? Why didn't he use his right as an apostle, as founder of their church, as their spiritual father, why didn't he take any money from them when other pastors had no problem taking money from this church? Well, he tells us why in the remaining words of verse 12. Such an important statement by Paul. He says, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. What a remarkable statement by the Apostle Paul, because, folks, it reveals the depth of this man's godly character and how much the gospel meant to him and how passionate he was about advancing the gospel so that others might come to know Christ. Let me explain. First of all, notice, notice he says these words, we endure all things. Again, the we here being a reference to he and his missionary team, Silas and Timothy. He says that he, Silas and Timothy, endured all things the entire time that they were in Corinth. So what does he mean by this? What does it mean to endure all things? Well, the Greek word that is translated endure has the primary meaning of keeping quiet or remaining silent out of love for others. So then what Paul is saying is that for the 18 months he was with them in Corinth, he put up with all kinds of inconveniences, 
without speaking a word, not a peep. He just kept fervently serving the Lord and the church regardless of how challenging it was. So no matter how much he had to deny himself certain amenities due to a shortage of funds, Paul refused to complain. He just kept quiet. And he worked hard at serving the Lord. He silently endured it all. That's what he's saying. He didn't complain. And why did Paul do this? Why didn't he ask the Corinthians for some money when he obviously had financial needs and they could have easily met those financial needs? Why did he do it? He did it this way. He tells us at the end of verse 12, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. What an amazing statement by the Apostle Paul. He explains here that the reason he refused to ask the Corinthians for any financial compensation for his ministerial services is because he didn't want taking money from them to hinder the gospel advancing through the Roman Empire, especially into Gentile pagan areas. What did Paul mean by this? How would him being paid by the Corinthians hinder the gospel? To begin with, the word that Paul used that's translated hindered, it's an unusual word. In fact, it's only used here in the New Testament. And the word means cutting into. It was used in other Greek literature, so we do know what it means. It was used in other Greek literature as a military term referring to an army cutting into or breaking up a road in order to prevent an enemy from advancing. So then what Paul is saying is that he refused to take any money from the Corinthians because to do so would hinder or prevent the gospel from advancing in the world. In other words, Paul's motivation for refusing to take money for his work was to remove any obstacle in the minds of people as they heard the gospel from him. Now let me explain what Paul is talking about and how this truth applies to us today. Paul was very conscious of the fact that some people might think that he did his ministry for the purpose of simply making money and only making money. He was just in it for the money. This was especially true in the Gentile culture where Paul's ministry was focused. Remember, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Because unlike Jewish people who were used to their rabbis, their teachers being paid for teaching the Old Testament, that was a foreign concept to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not used to itinerant Jewish teachers like Paul coming around proclaiming the truth about a Jewish Messiah based on Old Testament scripture. That's just a foreign concept to them. This is why it wasn't an issue for Apollos or for Peter to take money from the Corinthians because most of their work was done amongst the Jewish people. And the Jewish people really had no problem understanding that teachers, rabbis, should be paid for their labors. That was just part of their culture. It was understood. But that wasn't true of Paul because he was, the, as I said, he was the apostle to the Gentiles doing pioneer missionary work amongst pagan people who certainly were not used to paying men like him for their work of preaching a gospel message with which they were unfamiliar. This was a foreign concept. And folks, that is Paul's concern. He didn't want the Gentiles that he ministered to 
misunderstanding him. He didn't want them being suspicious of his motives for preaching, thinking that he was only in it for the money without any concern for them. They didn't understand that. They wouldn't have understood that. Who is this Jewish guy telling us about a Jewish Messiah that we don't know about based on the Jewish scriptures that we don't know about either? Well, what is this? Why is he here? What's the deal? What's behind his preaching? And so Paul said he just kept quiet, silently putting up with all kinds of physical hardships due to a lack of funds in order that no one would ever get the impression that he was just in it to make money. He wasn't about to let anything, even his own physical needs, and certainly he had them, get in the way of the advancement of the gospel because people might be suspicious of his motives. I read that and I say, what a man. What an example Paul is for us. What a model he is for those who preach the gospel, especially in settings where pioneer missionary work is going on. Commenting on this, one Bible teacher I read said this, in new ministries today, it is wise for those working in them to be able to support themselves or to be supported by fellow Christians until a group of believers is well established, particularly in light of some preachers who make merchandise of the gospel. Christian workers should be careful not to give grounds for any such charge against them. Calling people at the same time to come to Christ and to give their money is offensive. He's right. Folks, I hope that you'll let this truth sink in and that we all take this to heart. Because even though you may not be a pioneer missionary in foreign culture or even a pastor planting a new church in our culture, the principle that Paul lived by is that you should never do anything that would discredit or hinder the gospel, hinder it from advancing. And that includes the way you behave, the way I behave in our marriage, with our children, grandchildren, at work, at school, in your neighborhood. It includes your ethics, your financial integrity, how you speak to others, just the way that you conduct your life. Listen, people who don't know Christ, they judge the gospel by the way you and I behave. That's just a fact. So we have to be so careful that there's nothing in our lives that would contradict the gospel message and hinder it from making an impact on others. That was Paul's heart. It needs to be our heart. So if there's anything that you can think of in your life that is discrediting the gospel, then you just need to repent of it now so that the gospel is not hindered. That's the heart of Paul. That's the heart of the apostle. It should be our hearts as well. So having stated that he has a right to be paid by the Corinthians because they, after all, they did support other ministers, Paul moves on then to give a sixth reason why he has a right to be compensated by the Corinthians. He has a right to be supported by them, he says, because, number six, they should have known that God has ordained that all ministers have the right to be financially supported. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from? The altar. Now, Paul begins this verse by asking the question, do you not know? And folks, that's his way of saying, you should have known. You should have known. And what should the Corinthians have known? Well, he says, you should have known that those who perform 
sacred services, eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So what is he talking about? Well, this is a reference to priests and Levites during Old Testament times who, because they performed sacred services at the temple in Jerusalem, they were supported by the people that they ministered to. Now, they weren't given money for their services, but they were supported by the tithes of the people in the form of crops and animals, food that they could eat. The timeless principle that Paul is reminding the Corinthians of is found in the last few words of verse 13. Those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. In other words, God has ordained that those who serve him by offering him animal sacrifices on the altar should receive a portion of those animal sacrifices for their food. Now, even though most of the Corinthians were Gentiles, Paul expected them to know this Old Testament principle. Why? Well, apparently he taught this to them. Otherwise, how would they know this? He taught them that God had ordained Jewish priests to be supported for their services. And Paul expected that they would remember this because he taught this to them. Now, if this principle was true in Old Testament times, that those who served the Lord full-time should be supported by those that they served, then certainly it was true for the Corinthians and Paul since he was serving them full-time, and therefore he had every right to be paid by them, just as every full-time pastor today has a right to be paid by the church that he serves. This principle goes back to Old Testament times, but it is just as valid today. And Paul makes this point very clear in the next verse by giving the seventh and the final reason why he had a right to be paid by the Corinthians. It's because, number seven, Jesus, the Lord, commanded that those who devote themselves to preaching the gospel should be financially supported by the church, by God's people. Notice verse 14. So also, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul closes his arguments, he closes his reasons why the Corinthians should have paid him by appealing to something that Jesus taught. He says that the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel, meaning those who devote themselves full-time to gospel preaching, that they should get their living from the preaching of the gospel. In other words, full-time gospel preachers should be paid for their work by God's people. This is how the Lord has ordained that they earn their living. Now, here's what's interesting about this. There isn't any record in the New Testament of Jesus giving a command exactly like this. Now, it's very possible that Jesus did give these exact words, this exact command, but it wasn't recorded in the New Testament, though it was divinely revealed later to the Apostle Paul that Jesus said these words. That's very possible. However, more likely, what Paul's referring to is our Lord's words when he sent out 70 of his disciples to minister in the various towns and villages in Israel, telling them that they were to be financially supported by those that they stayed with and those that they ministered to. Specifically, here's what the Lord said in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. 
for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And that, that's the point that Paul is making. Jesus has commanded his church, his people, to financially support those who labor in proclaiming the gospel full-time. This is why I told you months ago when we started this series, this study, about how wrong it is for churches to not pay their pastors. As in the case of my friend in Italy, whose church did not pay him a salary, but they decided that the Christians in America should keep supporting him, so we don't have to pay him. Or another friend whose church decided to spend most of their money supporting missionaries so that they didn't have enough money to give him, their pastor, much of a salary. Those are shameful things. And disobedience, this is sheer disobedience to the Word of God because Jesus, Paul says, has commanded His church to support those who minister the gospel full-time. Now, with this seventh reason, Paul has finished giving his reasons, all of his reasons, for why he had every right to be paid by the Corinthians. However, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, Paul goes further in explaining why, though he had a right to be supported by the Corinthians, he refused this right. He's just touched upon it. Next week, we'll see he expands on that. And that's really, as I said, you don't want to miss this point, because that is the primary point that Paul wants the Corinthians to understand. Just because you have a right to eat whatever you want to eat, you don't have to take that right. You can give it up. Give up that right, just as I've given up my right to be financially supported by you. Folks, that's really the gist of this chapter. And that's exactly the lesson that the Lord has for us. Though you may have a right to drink, let's say, alcohol, or to participate in some event, or wear clothing that you want, or do anything that would fall under the category of a liberty issue, even though you may have a right to do that, you don't have to do that. You don't have to use your liberty. You can give it up for the sake of others. That's exactly what Paul will tell us he did, and that's exactly what God wants all of us to be willing to do if we are ever put in that situation. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for this marvelous chapter Grateful for this man you raised up, the Apostle Paul, and what a sanctifying work you did in his life. Lord, we want to be like him as he was like Christ, one who denied himself, one who endured silently and put up with all kinds of stuff, such deprivations in his own life so that the gospel would advance. Lord, may we have a heart like that. May we care about the gospel advancing more than getting our own way more than feeling compelled to say something. Lord, may our lives so shine and so reflect Christ that we would never hinder the gospel. Lord, may we have that heart. Do that work of grace in us, we pray. And help us, as we go through all the details of this chapter, not to miss the primary point, and that is that we don't have a right to hold on to anything. There is no entitlement taught in Scripture. We are to give up these things if that's what you want us to give up for the sake of others. So help us, Lord, to be loving towards you, 
which means to be loving towards others. Not to dig in our heels and say, we're going to do this, we're going to eat this, we're going to drink this, we're going to wear this, we're going to participate in this event, and we don't care what anybody thinks. Lord, we ought to care what others think. If indeed we would in any way put an obstacle in their spiritual lives. So help us, Lord, to apply these truths, to grasp them, to understand them, to digest them, and then to live by them. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.